Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. New Year, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Jerry Swigard. I get to be one of many teaching voices here that contribute to the life of the story that we're living um, as Antioch. I want to do something, though, because my family represents some of those who live stream consistently every week. And so those of you who are live streaming, we see you, we feel you, um, you're all over the place. But we also have people who um, have had flights canceled, Uh, and are literally all over the country right now. So if we can stand and look into that camera, I'm actually serious, stand up and look into that camera and wave at my little guys wrestling on the floor and all of our loved ones who are all over the country in airports. We see you. We love you. Come back safely and when you're ready. That's awesome. Um, This morning, I want to have... Here's my hunch, I guess, whenever I... I teach, um, or whenever we're gathered, my hunch is that the spirit roams untamed among us, you know? And, um, and there's things that I'm going to say that might be helpful. There's things that I'm going to say that you're not going to hear the words, but the spirit that's roaming is going to awaken something inside of you. And um, what I'm going to look at today is a little, bit of a, um, a little bit of a controversial passage. No surprise, they bring me in to do the controversial stuff, you know? Um, and so... <laughs> But what I want to do is, like, I want to, I want to prove that the spirit roams untamed among us. And the way that I want to prove it is, like, I want each of you to take out a piece of paper or prepare a note on your phone, and y'all can do it from the comfort of your living rooms or airport, airport terminals or wherever you are. Have a note ready, because there's going to be moments throughout this morning's teaching where I'm just going to pause, and I'm just going to ask you to identify what is the thing that's churning inside of you. It, it might feel like an invitation, it might feel like a conviction, it might feel like an impulse, it might feel like a question. All right, so when I pause, I'm going to invite you to actually identify that thing. And I know what it's like to be in a room with lots of people when someone invites me to do this thing. And I know what it means to like opt in or opt out of this. I actually dare you to do this. And then here's what we're going to do. At the end of, um, at the end of my time up here, I actually want you to send what you wrote down to amy at antiochchurch.org. I'm actually not kidding. Because what we want to do as pastors and teachers is get a sense for how the spirit roamed untamed in this room this morning and throughout homes all throughout central Oregon. So again, there's going to be moments where I'm going to pause and I'm just going to say, what's the Spirit maybe saying to you? And you might not hear a word. You might feel some kind of deep conviction. Try to describe it. And then at the end of our time, we're just going to collect all of those things. And then our pastors are going to go to work just to say, what did the Spirit bring up? What's the Spirit churning among us? Right? So that's how I want us to play this. The the other thing I'm going to say um, really quickly before I go is um, I cannot triple down enough how excited I am that Oshita Moore is going to be with us next week. I really see myself as the warm-up act to my dear friend Oshita, and um, and she and I get to do work together all over the country, and that she's going to be in our city, and she's going to be standing here bringing a message to white peacemakers. This is is one of those moments where we really don't want to miss. So um, buckle up. I'll just till the soil for her to come in and, and hit, a, hit a grand slam like she always does. Uh, John chapter 1. Let's go there. If you've got your Bibles, open up to John 1. 
or toggle over on your screen to, to take a look at this. Um, th- this is a unique passage. Um, uh, setting the context, John is writing in about 85 AD. If you think about when Jesus was chilling with us, it was like mid-30s. Uh, shortly after Jesus, around 70, Rome got angry enough with Israel that they just crushed them, took out the temple, and really destroyed a sense of national identity. Um, Really forced the Jewish people to ask some big questions about how strong their God really was. If Rome could come in and crumble their temple, the seat of God, uh, then how strong is our God really? And it caused the Jewish community to move into a diaspora, move all over the world. Right? So when John is writing, all of those things have already happened. And you have to imagine that the Jewish people and then the Jesus people are probably asking some really significant questions about the strength of God. What is God really up to if our national identity has been compromised and our deity seems to be weaker than that of Rome? These are some of the existential crises that people are asking when John is writing this final letter, which is really a, a letter to the people saying, here's who Jesus is, here's what Jesus did, and here's why it is that I follow him and I think you should too. Okay, and he begins, um, he begins this message, uh, and it's really a Genesis passage. He's, he's talking to a people who are fixated on Genesis. How did everything come to be? How does the community of humanity interact with the divine? Like, these are the questions that they're asking. So he starts with a Genesis. Although John doesn't center creation, he centers Christ. He says Christ predated creation. Christ initiated creation. Christ inhabited creation. In in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What John is writing here is that Christ is God's most accessible self-expression. That God put on flesh and came into our neighborhood to show us what God is like and to help us experience the extravagance of God's love. And, and so while books and sermons and commentaries for like 2,000 years have been dedicated to the wonderful big mystery of the opening lines of John chapter one. I'm not going to add to them this morning. Um, I am not smart enough. Instead, I want to focus on two jarring interruptions that occur in this passage. I've never really played with these before, but as I was preparing for our time together this morning, I kept reading John 1, 1 through 18, and I kept, I kept stumbling into these interruptions and wondering, finally, I wondered, like, what, why are they there? What is John trying to communicate to us through these two interruptions? Okay, so I want to play with the interruptions a little bit, and then I want to wonder together about how these interruptions can be instructive for us as a family, not as individuals, as a family, as we enter into a new year and continue to follow Jesus collectively as a family in a world that's marked by perpetual uncertainty and dissolving trust and growing anxiety and widening divides. Okay, so let's, let's consider these interruptions together. Okay, so the first interruption, I think, occurs in verses six through eight. So if you look at it, you have verses one through five, and they just 
flow beautifully together. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping to verse nine, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. There's this seamlessness liter, from a literary perspective. There's a flow from one through five right to nine, but John throws in this weird interruption in verses six through eight. So right when he's, he's saying the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, there was a man sent from God. It's like this weird about face. <gasps> there is a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then the beautiful lyrics continue in verse nine, the true light, which enlightens everyone and so on and so forth. So what's the deal with this first interruption? See, the assumption of the people who were listening in, remember, they have this way of understanding how the, the, the community of humanity and the divine interact with one another. The assumption would be that if the word and the light and the life have entered into creation, then, then they will overtake creation, hopefully through divine coercion, hopefully through military overthrow. Something big is going to happen. If the light and the word and the life are in creation, they're going to overtake creation. It's going to happen through divine dominion. But here, John, the author says, not so. The word the life and the light have entered creation, but they're not going to overtake creation through divine coercion, but rather they're going to spread through human witness. Now, this is not a new phenomenon in the story. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, right? God initiates a human community and then tasks them with putting on display what God is like within creation. And the way that he tasked them to do that is to steward and to co-create. That's how you put on display what God is like. You steward creation and you co-create within it, but that wasn't good enough for us. So we reached for the fruit of power and shattered all things that were good and true and beautiful. And so then in Genesis chapter 12, God looks at Abraham and he says, I'm now selecting your bloodline, not because you're more special than other bloodlines, not because I'm exclusively fixated on you. I just need a human witness. And I'm going to take this bloodline and I'm going to put you in a strategic location geographically so that by the way you live, love, and lead, the watching world will discover who I am and experience the extravagance of my love. And then, you know, fast forward, obviously Jesus is the very embodiment of the human witness of what God is like. Acts 1, uh, verse 8, he says to the community, you are about to receive power and you're going to become my witness throughout all of the world. And so for whatever reason, God has always chosen human witness over divine coercion as the way in which his fame was going to grow in the planet. No different here. Now let's think about this concept of witness for a second. What can we learn from uh, John the baptizer, if you've paid attention to John the baptizer at all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you understand that this, this guy lived a bizarre kind of alternative way of life, right? But the way that he lived was always pointing to the one who made and was remaking the world. 
Maybe that's a beautiful definition for us of what it means to be a witness. To live in such a bizarre and alternative way that it points to the one who made and is remaking the world. Maybe for us, that would help us understand that our lives should be substantively different, alternative, literally bizarre in the world that we find ourselves. And in the bizarreness, and we'll talk about what makes it so bizarre in a second, but in the bizarro reality of our shared life together, the watching world goes, what is it about these people? And in fact, they look and they see, oh, it's because they follow a God of extravagant sacrificial love that they live so weird. They live alternative to what is the status quo around us. We shouldn't mix in. We shouldn't be so incognito that the world doesn't see the difference. We should actually be in this world living a hopeful alternative to what is the status quo here. So, so here you have John who lived this bizarre alternative way of life that point to, pointed to the one who made and is remaking the world. But oftentimes we read this as American Christians and we go, we're to be like John. But the, the fact of the matter is Jesus never talks to the individual about how you are supposed to be a witness in all of the world. He always only ever talks to the collective, the corporate, the whole. So the teaching is not for us to walk out of this room and live bizarro like John. The teaching right now is to consider how do we as a family live the kind of alternative way of life that causes our watching world to discover the truth about God and experience the extravagance of his love. Go with me to John chapter 17. I think you'll see what I mean. John 17, Jesus really identifies, uh, identifies what our witness is. In John 17, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he begins by praying. This is his prayer. And I love how John, who always likes to identify as the one whom Jesus loved most, right? It's like, in this case, John is like everyone else was sleeping in the garden, but I was actually awake listening in, and here's what Jesus prayed, right? So it's like he's dictating the prayers that he allegedly heard. And in the beginning of the prayer, Jesus is praying for his immediate community, not for individuals, for the family. He's praying for the family. And he doesn't pray that God would remove them from the context and the culture. Rather, he prays that God would give them courage to be contagions, hopeful alternatives from within the context of their culture. It's hard, it's weird to live as bizarro alternatives to the status quo. Jesus knows that, so he's praying for his immediate community. And then Jesus' prayers turn in his attention to us, those who will believe in Jesus through that bizarro community. And when Jesus prays for us in, in verses 20 through 24, Jesus prays for our oneness. Listen, I do not ask for these only, his immediate bizarro community, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's our bizarro community. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, he says, our oneness, our oneness, not my witness, our oneness is the means by which our watching world is going to discover God and experience the extravagance of God's love. Our oneness, Antioch family, our oneness is our human witness. Now, a quick word on the difference between oneness and affiliation. I can put an Antioch sticker in my window. I can attend Antioch. I can send my kids to Antioch programming. I can give to Antioch. I can talk about Antioch as my preferred faith community in Central Oregon and not really ever participate in oneness. Why? Because all of those actions cost me very little. It requires very little of me to put a bumper sticker in my car window and to attend either here or in my living room. Affiliation, to identify with, is one thing. Affiliation is not our witness. Oneness is our witness. The difference between affiliation and oneness is that oneness costs me something. Flip over to John chapter 13, where I think we see what what cost what like what is the cost of oneness that is our witness that causes our watching world to discover the truth about God and experience the extravagance of his love in John chapter 13 34 and 35 Jesus is really breaking it all down and summing it up in one thing this is a pivotal passage in the life and teachings of Jesus because in all of his other teachings he's saying really good things he's telling really confusing and compelling stories he's offering common on all of the ancient commands that his people would be, be familiar with. But in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, I offer you now a new command. This is the only time Jesus ever says this. So he's cueing us as his listeners and his original community. This is unlike anything I have ever said before. This, what I'm about to tell you, is unlike any, this is unlike anything God has ever said to you. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love his community? Sacrificially. So in John 13, 34, and 35, we understand that the oneness of the Jesus community achieved and maintained through sacrificial love, that's our oneness. That's our witness. The oneness achieved through sacrificial love is our human witness. In other words, the watching world is going to discover the truth about God and experience the extravagance of God's love, not because of our bumper stickers and our attendance, but because of the radical, sacrificial way in which you and I choose to love one another within this family. It costs a lot more than bumper stickers and attendance. Are you with me? Our oneness is our witness. And so what do we make of this first interruption? Here's what I think. 
I think John, the author, is saying, yes, the word, the life, the light has entered into creation, but it's not going to overtake creation through divine coercion. Rather, it's going to spread through our commitment to one another. The way that we don't, need, we don't only know each other's first names, but we know each other's stories and pain and celebration. It's the way in which we give sacrificially to actually remake broken things within us and around us. That's the way that the watching world, that's the way that the word and the light and the life is gonna inhabit and saturate this place that we all call home. I think John, the author, is saying that, that Christ is remaking the world and actively drawing people through us through the courageous contagion of our oneness. So let me pause. Take out that note. What do you sense inside of your body right now? Inside of your mind, there's something, is there something stirry? Is there something churning up in you? Do you feel invited or convicted? Is there an impulse? Is there a question? Doesn't have to be perfect. Just identify it. Write it down right now. I wonder what it is that the spirit is stirring within this family. Okay. You ready for what I think is the second interruption? Okay. I think we see it in uh, 1 verse 15, if you flip back over to John chapter 1. Again, we have the, a fluid, lyrical flow happening in verse 14, and it really beautifully latches into what's happening in verse 16. But verse 15 is another literary interruption. It's weird that it's there. So let me show you. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, moving into 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's a flow there, but in verse 15, I mean, some translations actually put verse 15 in parentheses, like literally, because it feels so parenthetical and out of place. Here's what 15 says. Again, John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
What's the deal with this interruption? Why was it important for John the author to keep referring to John the baptizer in interrupting ways in this Genesis narrative? Well, if you look at verse 15, I think this is one moment where John the baptizer is making an emphatic statement that Jesus outranks him. And it's actually a continuation from the first interruption in 1, 6 through 8, where John says, I am not the light. I am a witness to bear witness to the light. I am not this. I am this. And then John continues this emphatic deflection, the decentering of himself and the centering of Jesus. He keeps pointing to how Jesus outranks him four times, as a matter of fact, in verses 19 through 27. So if you look at the passage, there's this moment where the, the religious elite come up to John and they say, hey, are, are you the Christ? And he says, I am not the Christ. Well, then are you the reincarnation of Elijah? I am not the Elijah. Well, then are you the prophet? I am not the prophet. And then later he says, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then the knots, the emphatic knots of John the baptizer culminate in John 3, 28 through 30. If you flip over and look at this really quick, 3, 28 through 30, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. John is saying, I am not the Christ. Christ outranks me right? Like he deflects and he dissenters. He keeps pointing to Jesus. He says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. When, when the bridegroom shows up, I'm the friend and my joy is made complete because everybody's not looking at me anymore. They're looking at him, right? So like, and then he, he says this, and God let this be the life verse of our family. He says, Christ must increase. I must decrease. So, why do you think John the baptizer is so emphatic that Christ outranks him? Why do you think he works so hard to point to Jesus and to dissenter himself? It's because like us, I think John the baptizer understands how easily power and platform and influence seduce us into self-centeredness and the misguided belief that this story is about us. Power and platform and influence, it doesn't need to be on like a massive social media status or a national level or anything. We all vie for power and platform and influence and there's nothing that seduces us more easily into self-centeredness and the idea that the story that we're living is about us than those three things. John is proactively pointing to Jesus so that in that he can actually continue to decenter himself. He's right-sizing his role in the story. And so if John is so emphatic about what he's not, is he also clear on who he is? Well, yeah, he is. If you look back at John 1, 6 through 8, he says, I'm a witness. In verse 22, he says, I am a voice. John the baptizer understood that his life was lived in a way that was meant to draw attention to the author and the main character of the story that he finds himself within. 
So what do we make of this second interruption? Here's what I think we can make of it. The story that we're living here in this chaotic, complicated, uncertain world that we find ourselves in, the story that we're living is one in which we are neither author nor main character. And that the goal of our witness made real in our oneness that is actually made possible because of our sacrificial love for one another. The goal of our shared witness is not to draw attention to ourselves so that there are more Antioch bumper stickers and bend. The goal of our oneness, of our witness, is to the point to the one who made and is remaking the world. So as I consider this second interruption, It humbles me in a world where the inertia says, make it about yourself. In a world that prioritizes the accumulation of influence and abundance and power, John the baptizer shows us what it means to deflect, to decenter, and to decrease. Not diminish, not become less of who he is, but to decrease, come alongside and underneath others. So let me pause for a moment, and I wonder what the Spirit might be churning up inside of you. Is there an invitation? Is there a conviction, an impulse, a question that the Spirit is asking you? I want to give you a minute to write that down. Now, where most sermons like to close is they like to say, okay, what is the message for you as an individual? And that's not, that's not the invitation. That's not the question for this morning. If you remember, I began by wondering about how these interruptions might be instructive for us as a family as we enter into a new year and learn to follow Jesus into the world that's marked by perpetual uncertainty and growing anxiety and dissolving relationships, widening divides. So here are two thoughts as it pertains to how these two interruptions might be instructive for our family. Number one, if oneness is our human witness and that oneness is only established and maintained through sacrificial love, then how might we proactively practice sacrifice as a family until the Spirit makes it our impulse and habit? How do we move as a family from affiliation to oneness? How do we make sacrifice with our time, with our resources, within the spheres that we already inhabit? How do we proactively practice sacrifice? Yes, we want it to become our habit. We want to react with sacrificial love. But before we can react with sacrificial love, I think we need to grow the practice of sacrifice with one another. Second 
in a world that prioritizes the accumulation and protection of power and influence, I wonder how we as a family can practice decrease until the spirit makes it our impulse and habit. Not diminish, not becoming lesser versions of ourselves, but decrease, decentering ourselves in ways that point to the one who made and is remaking the world. Decentering ourselves in service to one another. How do we proactively do that in 2022? And so, friends, as we embark upon a new year, may Christ increase in you, may Christ increase in me, may Christ increase in us, and may we decrease, for it's in our decrease, according to Philippians 2, that joy and fullness of life are found. Amen.